0: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Nancy Hill, and she is just a legend in the world of advertising and agencies. She's truly ad famous. She's got a 30-year career working with top-tier technology brands such as Cisco, Motorola, AOL, Sirius XM, just to name a few. In fact, one of the reasons why I wanted to start Agency Deal Dealmasters in the first place was actually because of people like Nancy Uh, She was named one of Advertising Age's 100 Most Influential Women in Advertising History. Uh, She was honoured by Ad Age as one of the most impressive women to watch. She's got just the most impressive CV um, and string of achievement. She was Managing Director of TBWA, Shiat Day. Uh, She was Managing Director of BBDO Worldwide. She became CEO of Low New York. Uh, She then went on to become President and CEO of the Four A's. Which gives her this unique perspective with which to discuss the evolution of advertising, uh, diversity and inclusion, something she spends a lot of her time on today. She's got a string of achievements just as long as your arm. So who, who better to speak to about all of these things than Nancy? If you are interested in such things as advertising, agencies and diversity, inclusion in the agency space and kind of where different agencies are on on that journey you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Nancy Hill. My extra special guest this week is Nancy Hill. She is a legend in the advertising industry, being president and CEO of The Four A's for over eight years. She has personally led the foray's work on diversity and inclusion. For over 30 years, she's worked directly with top tier technology and digital media companies such as Cisco, Motorola, AOL, Sirius XM, just to name a few. Nancy was recognized by the Advertising Women of New York with its Changing the Game Award. She was named one of Advertising Age's 100 most influential women in advertising history and was honored as a woman to watch by Ad Age. She also served on the board of the Ad Council, National Advertising Review Council, Digital Advertising Alliance, Advertising Self-Regulatory Council, the Marcus Graham Project. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Nancy Hill, welcome to Agency Dealmasters.
1: Good morning.
0: So you've had an absolutely fascinating career in advertising. You, you were f- the former president and CEO of the Four A's, uh, CEO of Lowe in New York, EVP of BBDO worldwide, and also managing partner of TBWA. But you get your bachelor's degree from the University of Mount Union in sociology and psychology. What did you think you were going to do with your degree at that time?
1: Well, I was definitely a product of the 70s and the 70s in the US, if you remember, was a very interesting time. Vietnam War had just ended. The uh, protests were over um, and there were there were a, a late group of us who were graduating from high school and college in the, the late 70s who kind of fell between the cracks in terms of what our purpose was because we weren't protesting the war anymore, and we weren't really part of that go-go 80s generation. Hmm. But there were many of us who thought that we were gonna go out and save the world until we realized that we couldn't make any money doing that. So my degree in psychology and sociology originally was intended to go into social work. And I thought that that was something that I was gonna be enjoying and that I would love doing, um, and in a way, giving back to the communities. but. I also realized that I, I could not live hand to mouth, which is what those people have to do to give that sacrifice in order to, to, to fulfill the community's needs. I kind of fell into advertising. I, um, I was in graduate school. I got a call from my mom. She knew I was miserable trying to work three jobs, putting myself through grad school. And she said, there's this job in my hometown as a entry level marketing person Um, And all they want is a bachelor's degree. So I applied for the job and I got it. And it was a company that manufactured blank audio tape, Hmm. um, American made, um, and they competed against Maxell and TDK. And for those of you in the audience, the blank audio tape was the way we used to record playlists um, (laughs) to give to other people. Um, But uh, competing uh, in a very commoditized market against Maxell and TDK The product eventually failed. And after two years, uh, they closed down that division of the company and I was laid off. And my boss, who had been an ex-JWT guy, said, I really think you'd like agency work. Hmm. You ought to look into that. Well, in my little tiny hometown, there was no such thing as an ad agency. So I looked in Pittsburgh and Baltimore because I didn't think I was ready for New York. Uh, And I ended up getting a job at Donor in Baltimore. And that's what launched my career in the agency business.
0: Really fascinating. So you became managing partner of TBWA, the legendary agency in 1994. And by the way, this is just 10 years after the 1984 iconic Apple Mac adverts that just, just kind of were legendary. Tell us what kind of culture gave rise to that kind of disruptive thinking in tbwa and talk a little bit about what that experience was like
1: so let me give you a quick shot of how i ended up there i had gotten recruited from donor in baltimore where i had run the bell atlantic mobile business now just to put that in perspective bell atlantic mobile was the launch of cellular in the united states in the late 80s early 90s Hmm. and i I ran that piece of business for almost 10 years at Donor. So that was early days in technology. And that, by the way, Bell Atlantic Mobile is now Verizon Wireless in the U.S. And that that piece of business, when I first started working on it, was four and a half million in radio and outdoor. And now they spend 100 billion a year in everything. So uh, I got recruited to TBWA in St. Louis to run a piece of business that they had just won, which was another telco, Mm. as they were launching T1 lines into business. So this is early internet. And at the same time, about six months after I got there, TBWA LA was being asked to pitch a national consortium of all of the wireless providers. So Bell Atlantic, US West, Pac Bell, et cetera. Um, that we're going to come together under one brand and tbwa in our Shiat in la found out that i had run the bell atlantic business for all those years Uh so they asked me to come help on the pitch which i did and we ended up winning (laughs) and they moved me to la to run that business and that's how i ended up there
0: fascinating
1: the whole thing ended up falling apart after i got there because the the various companies couldn't come to any agreements but I ended up staying in L.A. and running several pieces of technology business for Shiat. When I got there, I felt like I had landed in a different business than what I had known. It was so much more um, elevated and competitive. But when I say that, I mean it in a friendly way Hmm. in terms of the way that the culture operated. There were... On everybody's desk, there was, or nobody had desks because it was virtual, but there were computers all over the building. And the screensavers said things like, innovate or die, and death is not an option. Or it said, good enough is not enough. Hmm. And you certainly felt like you had to raise your own game in order to live up to the standards that everybody around you were living up to. And it was... An exhilarating and heady experience for me, because that piece of business had fallen apart, I then got assigned to work on the new business team. So that meant that I got to go sit in a room every single day with Lee Clow, with Adam Morgan, with Bob Cooperman and with Lori Coots. Hmm. And some days I would look in the mirror on my way out the door and say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I knew that I had to up my game in order to be as good as the people around me.
0: What does upping your game mean in that context?
1: Meaning that I think that you had to push yourself harder. You had to make sure. Now, the other thing I should clarify, I grew up in the business as an account person. So when you're working at a a highly creative storied agency like Shiat Day as an account person, at first you kind of have to try to figure out out what your role is as an account person. Mm -hmm. And I remember somebody once describing to me that being an account person at Shiat Day is kind of like walking barefoot on a razor blade with a client <laughs> on one side and the agency on the other, and yes. you're too afraid to go to either side, so you'll go ahead and cut your feet. <laughs> but, <laughs> Love but what I, what I learned there about being a really good account person was that it was my job to make sure that the environment was created, both with the client and with the team, in which great work could happen. So I had to clear all the obstacles out of the way, meaning was the client happy with all of the other things that we were doing? Were we meeting our timing? Were we meeting our objectives? Were we doing all of those things so that the creative that we presented would be accepted by the client, run by the client and celebrated? And so it was a a whole new way of looking at what my role was beyond just being a good, business partner to my clients
0: sure really fascinating you you later became managing director of bbdo in in 2003 who is actually a competitor to uh tbwa i guess talent does move quite fluidly between the two the two agencies what made bbdo different unique stand out to tbwa What what were the differences? What were the similarities? And what did you take away from the experience with TBWA that you found useful at BBDO?
1: Well, I think we have to talk about one thing. There was a period in between TBWA and BBDO wherein I was in San Francisco for seven years running an agency uh, called Goldberg, Moser, O'Neill, which, by the way, had been the Shiat office in San Francisco at one time and then bought itself back. So it very much still had that same culture that I experienced at Shiat. But it was also the timing. I ran that agency during the dot com up and the dot com down. And so we experienced a crash like nobody had ever seen, especially in San Francisco, um, and especially because our largest client was Cisco Systems at the time and they got particularly hard hit by the dot-com crash. So I had to manage an agency through through some incredible ups and then some very severe downturns. Uh, And then BBDO had been recruiting me for quite some time. I eventually took the job at BBDO. And I have to say the culture difference, and, and the listeners in the US will understand this, but the culture difference between having spent so many years working on the West Coast and then coming to New York, was like, again, experience of experiencing a whole new industry. Uh, most of the big New York agencies have build, been built on big packaged goods pieces of business that they've had for years. Um, and that was true even of BBDO. If you think about them being built uh, with Pepsi as one of their largest clients th- throughout the world, that's a very different experience than what happened at SHIAT in LA or at Goldberg Mosier O'Neill in San Francisco, where you're not really dealing with as many bi- at the time at the time um, as big multinational pieces of business, and certainly not package goods accounts that have five-year planning cycles. You're dealing more with technology pieces of business that have quarterly planning cycles. So the mentality about how you work with your client, what your deliverables are, and how you operate is very different. I'm not saying one's better than the other. It's just a very different culture. Hmm. And when I first got to BBDO, I can remember talking to one of my peers, and and he ran the uh, to lay business. And I asked him what he was working on. He said, "Well, we're working on the five-year plan for Free to Lay." And I was like, "I don't even know what a five-year plan is. I'm lucky <laughs> if I get a five-minute plan <laughs> with so, my clients because my clients were tech clients. So it's it's just a different right. environment. Like I said, not one better than the other. And certainly, you know, BBDO has always been known for the big um, Super Bowl spots in the U.S. and and maybe not so much." these days, but at the time when I first got there, that's really what they were known for. Um, Big celebrity filled story driven uh, spots um, and not so much other mediums. Uh, So again, just different cultures. And I think a lot of those cultures had been dictated by the clients, not when when I say dictated, I don't mean that um, the client said it was going to be this way, but it was the kind of clients that sort of created the cultures. So
0: you moved to the forays and became president and CEO in, in 2008. But before we talk about that in detail, I kind of want to set the scene and talk a little bit about advertising, what advertising is today, because, you know, many have said that, you know, really we're in the age of of data and data driven creative and without a business case for any sort of, you know, creativity, creative ideas tend to die quite early. What is advertising today, in your opinion? Is it the sort of thing where consumers' hearts and minds are captured by a big original idea articulated really, really well? Or is it increasingly more of a science that gravitates towards analyzing data and preferences and how consumers are sort of swaying one way or another? Is it more a hearts and mind thing and big picture idea or is it more data driven? What is advertising today?
1: So I'm going to take the easy out and say yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, I I truly believe at its core, advertising is still the art of pers- persuasion. We just have now more tools to help us figure out what's the best way to persuade. I, I remember early, uh, probably back in the 90s, somebody once saying, you know, it's not good enough to put an ad out To a young mother um, in the in a place where you know a young mother is watching, you know, like one of the soap operas of the nineties, like Melrose Place. She doesn't want to see an ad for poopy diapers when she's watching these glamorous people running around. So you have to keep in mind context. And I think now we actually have more opportunity to make sure that context is driving where we're putting what message and when, so that we're hitting people with the right message at the right time with the better ability to persuade.
0: And the context that you're talking about, to what extent does the pandemic play into the way that consumers have changed or their preferences or what consumers want and demand from brands now prior to Uh, sort of 12 months ago, some people have argued that the pandemic has allowed us to go through a portal where we're on the other side of this thing. And now all things are possible. How does that change the way creative ideas are brought to life and how brands can talk to and engage consumers in more meaningful ways?
1: Well, I don't think we've seen the net fallout from the pandemic just yet, because I don't think we know what it's going to lo- look like as people start to emerge. Um, it's just beginning to turn that corner now that people are getting vaccined and, and people are really feeling like there's some hope now. Um, so I don't think we know all the answers to that question. I do think we know some fundamentals that changed, that that got accelerated, if you will, during the pandemic. And and that word has been overused, but it, it's so true that things that were starting to happen before the pandemic just got accelerated during the Mm. pandemic Mm. um i mean the fact that we're using video for meetings and all of those other things that was really kind of old technology look how fast it ramped up in the course of the 15 months Um, i know that and, and i look at myself and my behavior there are a lot of things that i'm getting delivered now that i didn't get delivered before and i think if you start to think about your shopping options ranging from Google to Amazon, to Etsy, to whoever it is. I think that the behavior has changed fundamentally about what people's expectations are from retail. Um, you're going to have to provide me with a pretty exceptional retail experience for me to go into a store. Um, Cause I really don't feel the need to go into a store if I don't have to. But if you give me a really incredible experience, then I will. So I think, Every single, and you can get, you can say that same thing about virtually any industry that requires a an in person uh, visit, whether that's a hotel or a retail experience or a movie or whatever it is. There's going to be some behavior changes that are here permanently that I don't think we even really understand yet.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the forays and and diversity in in a bit more detail because you. I listened to a talk that you gave as part of the Worldwide Partners Reimagine online event a few weeks ago, and it was very moving. Um, there were a number of agency owners that you spoke to there. But let's set the context for this discussion first by talking about the 4As. So, you became president and CEO of the 4As um, in around 2008, I think it was trade association for those that that don't know trade association for advertising agencies with over 700 members across 13 uh, 1300 offices it controls more than 85 percent of the total u.s advertising uh, spend talk a little bit about why you joined the forays in the beginning what culture you found when you arrived there and what you feel your most important legacy is
1: so the job had been open for a while, and they had been going through a search to find a replacement for the, the person who had had the job before me, who was a gentleman who had that job for 18 years. And um, it was getting toward the end of the search, and the the gentleman who was the, the chairman of the board at the time was a guy named Tom Carroll, who had been the CEO of TBWA, so things come full circle. I knew him from my Shia days. And he kept calling me and telling me that I needed to throw my hat in the ring for this job because he, he, as he kept saying to me, you are the brief. And I kept going, I don't want to run a trade association. I can't in my wildest dreams. Imagine me coming from TBWA and BBDO and all of those other, to run a dusty old trade association. (laughs) It, it, It was, you know, a hundred year old organization and it had been traditionally run by white guys. And I just couldn't see, and very much of the Mad Men country club set. And I just could not see myself doing that. So I finally relented and met with the search committee and said, okay, maybe this is an opportunity for me to give back to the industry that I love so much. So I went through the interviewing process. I took the job. I started in February of 2008 and I had no idea just how um, dusty the organization had become. Hmm. And, and I say that on many fronts, um, not the least of which was its own tech use of technology. Um, and I had to, I'll, I'll just give you a, a phone call that happened about two weeks before I started. I got a call from the head of HR and she said, we want to make sure you're completely set up and ready to go when you come in. Um, let's talk about laptop and phones and so on and so forth. And the first thing I said, Well, I just got myself a, a new Mac and I'll bring it and we can just put it on the network. And there was, it was dead silence at the end of the phone. And she said, Oh, well, up until now nobody's had a Mac here and nobody's been allowed to have a Mac here. Wow. And I was like, Oh, okay, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> We're in advertising and nobody's using a Mac. Amazing. And then the second thing was at the time, the iPhone had just come out, but I still had a uh, a Blackberry. And I said, I'll bring my, I just got a new one and I'll bring that with me and we can put that on the network. And she said, well, everybody here uses a Palm. Wow. Palm." a palm. (laughs) And I said, okay, "Okay, well, all of this is going to change because I can't operate this way. And people need to be able to use whatever technology they need to be able to use. But that was just an indication in my head. Then the second thing that happened was when I got there on the wall outside of the big board of directors room were pictures of all of the past CEOs and the past chairman of the board. So in a hundred years history, I was the ninth CEO. So there were eight predecessors to me. And then there were about 45 chairmen over the course of that hundred years. Every single person in that gallery was white. And there were two women. Hmm. One was Shelly Lazarus and the other one was Charlotte Beers. That's it on that whole gallery. Meanwhile, every summer we hosted the kickoff for our, um, I think at that time it was about 35-year-old program called the Multicultural Advertising Internship Program, affectionately known as Mape in the U.S. And we would bring in 100 kids who were going to go out into the industry as interns that summer and introduce them to the world of advertising. And that's the wall that they looked at that said, "This is what success looks like in advertising." Interesting. Sure. And I said, "The wall is coming down. It's mm. all those pictures have to come down." and um we took it down we digitized it to make sure we kept everything for history but i looked at everything that we were doing with such a completely different lens than my predecessor had done i'm not to say that he was a bad person he Mm. just didn't look at it through what is this going to look like to a young black kid from uh, a a different environment as he's coming into this internship program about to launch his career in advertising Mm. I don't have a place if my, there's nobody up there on that wall that looks like me. That
0: looks like me, no.
1: Right. And I, I was the first person to start to look at those things that way and say, okay, what do we do differently that makes this a much more inclusive industry for these kids that we're trying to attract? Not just giving them internships, but how do we make them feel like they belong here?
0: So... As I said, I listened to a talk that you gave where you hosted a panel of agency owners from all over the world. Uh, there was an Irish agency, Belgian agency, Argentina, Trinidad and Tobago, Toronto, US. Every different agency owner was on their own uh, sort of diversity journey. They were at different stages of their diversity journey. We all know it's a huge issue in our industry, one that's been highlighted by 2020 and the events of um uh, George Floyd's murder. So a huge spotlight has been shone on this. And I think every agency acknowledges that we need to do better and more needs to be done. When you hosted that, and I'm sure you've had a ton of uh, other conversations with a ton of other agencies and as, you know, on varying degrees of that um journey. What were your biggest takeaways from that experience specifically, the event that you hosted? And talk a little bit about where people should start on their diversity journey, because it looks as though, it, you know, it, the problem is so big and it's almost like boiling the ocean. Where do you start? If you're an independent agency owner with, you know, a handful of people, you, you do want to get more diversity in, into the industry and you recognize it's a problem, but you're running a business at the same time. I know there are two different questions in there. So the first one is, what were your main takeaways from the event that you hosted and the second one we can talk about is sort of where should people start on this journey?
1: Those two questions are actually really fundamentally related to each other. Um, what I took away from that conversation was how far we still have to come in as and in, in, in many parts of the world where we haven't even started yet. And I think part of that getting started is the fear. And you alluded to it when you talked about how big it feels. It's like, I'm afraid that if I take one step, it's gonna be wrong and I'm gonna make a mistake and then I have to start all over again. And there's still this fear of having the conversations that we have to have because people, especially white people are very afraid of making a mistake, offending somebody, um, wading into waters that they don't know anything about And that fear keeps them from taking the first step, even by the way, this was the case of I would, I believe of my predecessor, um, that for 18 years, he avoided having these conversations because they made him uncomfortable. Hmm. And again, this is not to point a finger at him as a bad person It's just to say that that was the prevailing, um attitude, if you will, for many people in the industry, uh, white people especially, that they just were afraid to have these conversations because they might make a huge mistake and they didn't want to have egg on their face, so to speak. And the Human Rights Commission in New York, at the time that I joined, was calling the agencies to task for not addressing this issue. And they were called up in front of hearings and it was crazy. And And one day I went to one of the hearings and the guy who was the chairman of the Human Rights Commission actually called me out in the hearing and thanked me for coming hmm. and said publicly, your predecessor would never have shown his face here. Wow. And I made it a point And I only use this as an example of what I did, but I made it a point of showing up at those things. I went to the meetings with the NAACP. I went to the meetings with Jesse Jackson. I went to the meetings with Reverend Al Sharpton. Mm -hmm. I was willing to have those conversations on behalf of the industry because somebody had to. And I think that's the same thing in, in some of these agencies that haven't gotten started on this journey, is that you just have to to like take that leap and say, okay, I'm going to go down this. I'm going to, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm probably going to say some things that might offend people, but I'm willing to put myself out there because I think it's the right thing to do, not only socially, but for business. And until you take that first step, you don't really know what that journey is going to look like. And by the way, that journey is going to be different for every agency.
0: There've been so many, calls for agency owners to do something and in the in the context of George Floyd's murder there were there was huge outcry uh, you know there are a lot of agencies that sort of wanted to put in diversity initiatives or unconscious bias training um uh, courageous conversation training maybe that's something that we can define actually the difference between unconscious bias training and courageous conversation training they've both been criticized for not being effective or kind of being token gestures. When you do have an agency owner that does try and implement something to try and tackle the issue, they're then criticized for the little, you know, sort of initiatives that they do do. So I guess it's a two-part question again. Maybe let's define the terms. What is unconscious bias training? What is uh, courageous? conversations and what are the pluses and minuses of each?
1: So part of the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and what happened in the agency community with 600 and Rising and Allyship in Action and some of the other activist groups um, coming out and saying, this is enough is enough. By the way, we've been having this conversation in this industry since 1955. I went when I first got to the forays. I, w- I did some research and I went back in the archives to find out how long this conversation has been going on. And I found a speech from the forays annual meeting um, from 1955 that was given by the then chairman of the board, was a guy named Jock Elliott, who was the CEO of Ogilvy. And in his speech, he said specifically, and mind you, these are his words, not mine we need more negroes in this business wow and he called for the agents the agency business to change the way that they were recruiting 1955 this is how long we've been having this conversation mm-hmm. and if you track it over the course of the time between 1955 and now it almost takes like a 10-year cycle um, of we're doing something about it here are all these programs instituting them everybody gets behind it and rallies and then business does what it does and we go back to our daily business and we forget about it and then something happens and it happens again i i pray that what happened last year with george floyd's murder being the impetus for loud voices one more time does not stop just because we've gone back to our business so i i preface all of that that we're about to talk about with the backdrop of that context and that history The reason i say that is because every time we've had these um, industry pushes to do something a couple of other things happen that are either natural or um i don't know what but they're outgrowths of of this hue and cry and that is that all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of consultants out there who are going to help you with your diversity efforts yeah some of which are really good and some of which They just put a shingle out and said, I'm doing this now with no training and and no other um, sort of credentials behind them. Mm. So unconscious bias training has been around for probably about 20 years. Um, A lot of the Silicon Valley companies have used it. I know Facebook has done a lot of work with it. Google has done a lot of work with it. Some of them have even made their own training publicly available so that you could just take that training online if you wanted to. It really is to help people understand their own biases that they bring, even when they would like to think that they don't have any. Um, I'll give you the most common example. People will say, I don't see color. Hmm. And I will always push back on them and say, well, that's like you telling me that you don't notice that I'm six foot tall. <laughs> I'm sorry. But you, when I walk in a room, that's the first thing you notice sure. is that I'm six foot tall. It's kind of hmm. hard to avoid. And you can't tell me that when somebody walks into the room who's got black skin that you don't notice that. You do. Mm. So just get comfortable with that bias and understand what that means and what your immediate reaction to somebody is. Again, let me use my height as an example. People think that I'm smarter than I am. They automatically give me an extra couple of IQ points. They automatically think that I have certain advantages, because I'm six foot tall, Mm. that they ascribe to me, it's the same. And they do that in a very quick inventory in their head. Mm. It's not something that they consciously check off on their list. But that's how they think of me when they look at me. So when when somebody tells me, I don't have any biases against people of color, it's like, yes, you do and get comfortable with that. That's unconscious bias training at its core is understanding that you do have those biases and it's okay to have those biases. It's what you do with them. That's important. Hmm. Then you courageous conversations, which by the way, is a a consulting company here in the U S that's run by a guy named Glenn Singleton and his company's name is courageous conversations. Now, whether he coined that term or not, I don't know, but the way that he uses it is going back to what I was talking about, where you just have to be willing to have some conversations that are going to make you uncomfortable hmm. so that you can get to the other side of that conversation and start to recognize the the empathy that's needed to understand where somebody else is coming from. Those are courageous conversations in it in and of their core. There are much bigger. Um, more uh, broadly used definitions for each but for me those are what those two things mean
0: now there's the talk there's the creative conversations and there is unconscious bias training and, and these things are all well and good because it starts the conversation and for many people they probably wouldn't have had these conversations at all but how do we move away from talking about doing it and actually starting to make some change in the industry what what can we start doing you know do we need to start introducing quotas into hiring practices do we need to start hiring and looking for talent in completely different places you know if you're looking at uh, you know university degrees or that you know they need to have a certain level of experience you know those things rule out a whole cross-section of our society what are the practical things that agency owners can do and think about to start increasing the diversity within their talent ranks because it's you know it's a huge issue I mean you know one of the things that we're doing for instance is we're hiring a cohort of 16 to 18 year olds so young people just leaving leaving college thinking about what they're going to do with their careers now for me and a lot of other people a lot of my friends and family They didn't know that this industry existed at all. It wasn't on their on their radar. So bringing them in, giving them jobs in editing, video production, uh, you know, content creation, etc., having them work here as a as a cohort, and then placing them as a group into an agency that we've got a you know really good relationship with. That's our model for trying to increase the the amount of diversity, young diverse talent in in the industry that's very unique to us in our model because we can, you know, we can do that and we can bake that into the way that we do business. How should other agency owners be thinking about actually tangible, practical things that they can do to increase the amount of diversity in our industry?
1: Well, I don't want to fall back on the yes, yes, and yes, uh, but I will. <laughs> uh, it's all, it's all those things. Um, I, I, And I applaud you for the program that you're undertaking because it's important to attract young people, always important to attract young people, but it's not enough. And the reason that I say that it's not enough, it's too easy to point to internship programs and entry-level programs. We've had those. Uh, Again, the MAPE program in the United States is now probably somewhere between 45 and 50 years old. And we've put, over 3,000 people through that program um over the course of the history and the problem is that the when young people come into the industry and they're excited and they look up Mm -hmm. and they don't see people who look like them they drop out and they Mm -hmm. go to the client side or they go do something else and if we don't attack it at the middle and the top we're never going to create a place where people who are entry level feel like they can grow and that's the biggest problem that I think we have, is that we're not, we're not. again, we haven't created that environment that's inclusive that makes them want to stay. And until we d- address that issue, and yes, you mentioned looking in different places, looking at different degrees, but I'd also submit that we also have to look at people's experience in a different way. Let me, let me give you a classic example of what goes on in the U.S agency a has car account b and it's run by account guy c right now account guy c is a guy who bleeds automotive he's been in the automotive industry probably worked for three or four different agencies on three or four different brands He leaves to go to yet another agency because another agency recruited him. The first thing we do is say, we need to find another guy that looks (laughs) just like account guy C. (laughs) So we'll go to another agency Mm. and recruit account guy D who looks just like account guy C. Mm. Never thinking to ourselves, maybe there's somebody who works at GM or Ford who's a mid-level person who's or a senior level person who might be a person of color who we could bring into the agency and create a new person in this Mm -hmm. industry versus trying to just recycle the same people because they all look the same. We've had a history of what I call expedient hiring which is, oh my God, we have to replace this person tomorrow because the whole thing is going to crumble if we don't, which means mm. we always look for the same people over and over and over again, instead of taking the time to expand the pool when we have the opportunity. And until until the HR people and recruiting people are given the direction that they need to look at these roles in different ways and that they need to take the time, no matter how much the hiring manager is breathing down their neck, to, to expand those pools and create a diverse pool. We're never gonna change this. Okay. There's a there's a, a rule in the United States um, in the NFL called the Rooney Rule. Have you heard of this?
0: I've heard of the Rooney Rule. I don't know what it is Okay. Though.
1: So many years ago, the NFL was sued by a group of um, black coaches who felt like they were being excluded from all the top jobs um, coaching in the nfl and they were represented by a a, an attorney named cyrus uh cyrus vance and cyrus um by the way or cyrus mary cyrus was was about to bring a lawsuit against the advertising agencies in 2009 um, until he realized that he couldn't really develop a class because of the holding companies, which is a whole different discussion. But he did successfully bring lawsuits against Wall Street and against the NFL. And in the settlement for the NFL, part of the ruling was something that's now now known as the Rooney Rule, because Art Rooney was the commissioner of the NFL at the time. Hmm. When NFL teams are looking for new coaches above a certain level, the slate of candidates must include at least one coach who is black. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that that person is going to get the job, but the slate has to include at least one person. And so the NFL has employed the Rooney rule for many, many years. And I'm not saying it's perfect because it's not. But if you don't start pushing HR to include slates that, don't include only white candidates or don't include all white male candidates then we're never going to get to a place where we're pushing ourselves to diversify the mid to senior level people Hmm.
0: so by that thinking then that needs to be driven by the leadership team the ceo the founder the managing director that you know they need to put the pressure on the hiring team the hr people to make sure that you know the the pool of candidates that they put in front of you know the hiring team are diverse so that's right change needs to come from top down not not bottom up where do you where do you stand on that
1: it has to come from both you can't it, it absolutely has to come from top down because if it doesn't people don't take it seriously but if you don't also have a groundswell of people especially the the um the junior level people who come from a generation where they demand this, mm. they need to continue to use their voices to demand the pressure from the bottom and then the pressure from the top, then we will force change. It can't come from one or the other, it has to come from both.
0: Mm. Really fascinating. Nancy, I can speak to you about this all, all day, but we're, we're running out of time. Final, final question before we get into our, our speed round, our favorite questions that we ask everyone at the end of the interview. Are you hopeful? about changing our industry?
1: I am hopeful. And the reason I'm hopeful is because as I was just starting to talk about the younger generation who really doesn't abide by the, the old norms and the old rules. I've been saying for many years, this is a generation who refuses to um, conform to the way that we do business. We we came into this business and said, okay, how, how do I need to adjust myself to make sure that I'm going to be successful in this business? So I would change, not necessarily who I was, but how I behaved. They won't do that. They expect you to change for them. Now, a lot of people complain about that. But in many ways, I think that's going to force our change because we're not going to get them to just adapt to the old ways of doing things. Hmm.
0: Absolutely love it. Let's hope that you're right. And I do have a sneaking suspicion that you are. I mean, we're already seeing, uh, you know, significant change happening on this side of the Atlantic. And um, uh, I'm sure that that's been mirrored where you are as well, Nancy. Let, let's get into our favourite questions. These are the questions that we ask all of our guests. So I know I've only got you for a few minutes, but let's see how many how many we can get through. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience.
1: So... One of the the stories I love to tell is I was uh, about three years in the business and I was working in the new business team and I had been asked to set up a meeting room for the presentation. And so I had the wall all ready to go and everything looked, I thought, really um, perfect. And I was really excited about having been in charge for the first time of getting the room ready. And it was about 15 minutes before the presentation and the creative director came up and he was looking at the wall and... He, he stopped at one point and cocked his head. And then he came over to me and very politely asked me if I would step out in the hallway with him away from the rest of the team. And he looked at me and he said to me, the wall looks great. He said, I just have one question. And he pointed to the section on the wall and he said, is that where I'm supposed to do the reveal? And I said, yeah. And he and I was, all you know, very excited. And he looked up at me and he said, Nancy, I don't think I can reach that. And as I, as I alluded to earlier, I'm six foot tall. So I had put that at a position where I could reach Uh, it. He was only about five, two or five, three. And it, by but that moment in my career, like really stopped me in my tracks because I went through my life operating like everybody's six foot tall. And I, but it taught me how to put myself in somebody else's shoes in a way that I don't think it, I could have ever learned in any other way.
0: Wow. Have you read that book, Invisible Women? Um, it's it's just about the same thing. It's the fact that our world has been designed by men, uh, You know, from the iPhone to pavements to cities, and men look at the world from their own perspective. They don't think about the perspectives of women or children or anyone else they design city centers around the way that they use them. And I guess it just speaks to human nature, right? It's, it's just what That's we exactly do. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, really fascinating example. Tell us about some of your mentors. You've worked with some amazing uh, agencies and brands over the years. Who has influenced the way that you think about advertising uh, agencies, branding, growth? Yeah, tell us about some of your favorite mentors.
1: So, um, I mentioned Lori Coots um, from TBWA. She was the longtime head of new business, chief marketing officer. Um, she was one of those people who really preferred to kind of stay behind the scenes, if you will, but who was one of those brilliant minds, who was the mastermind behind so many of the things that Shiat did. She was the one that Jay went to when he wanted to do the virtual office, and she masterminded that whole thing. And yes, it was a little bit ahead of its time uh, in terms of the technology being able to actually deliver on it. But so many of the things that they learned from that experience are applicable to what we're going through right now. Um, We just didn't know it at the time. And uh, I learned so much from her about forward thinking and not being um, stuck to the, the, the buckets that we know today and thinking about what those buckets could be. Um, Mm. As far as um, people that I looked up to, I I, I always felt that I could learn something from every single boss that I had. Sometimes the things I learned were the things not to do uh, (laughs) as much as the things to do. And I think it's really important to treat every person that you're working for or working with as somebody that you can learn from mm. and as long as you're open to that you can find mentors anywhere and i think that's a really important part of this industry is finding those mentors that you need at that moment in time mm. i also feel very strongly about giving back so i spend probably three four or five hours a week um, having conversations with people who are not paying me Um, to make sure that I can give back when I can. And that's an important part of what I believe this industry is about.
0: Absolutely love it. The books question, um, what books have been most instrumental to the way that you think about the agency business, advertising, diversity, your own journey? Yeah, tell us about your favorite books.
1: So I grew up on um, Nancy Drew hardy boys nancy drew i love the hardy boys so i so what i always loved about nancy drew was that it was her intrepid quality of just like tracking down everything mm. but then i eventually graduated to arthur conan doyle and uh, sherlock holmes and that was a, okay. a, something that i shared with my father who just passed recently um but he got me hooked on sherlock holmes as a young kid and the whole unraveling of mysteries and peeling back the onions is so much of what i loved about the way i worked with clients it's like okay mm. it's it's the, it's not this let's keep peeling back those things until we get to the core and the essence I think that always just taught me that that whole notion of good enough is not enough, because if you stop at the outside of the onion, you're never going to get to the the inside and what's really at the heart of it. Mm. And I feel that way about every issue that I've ever tackled, about everything that I've ever looked at. It's never on the surface what it appears to be. And going back to our conversation about diversity it it's yes, yes, yes. And yes, it's not the, (laughs) it's not the, it's not the, okay, let's just do it. Yeah. It's gotta be all black or white. Right. You have to look at everything holistically Mm. from a business perspective. One of the business um, writers that I really admire is Adam Grant. Um, Mm. And uh, he's a psychologist by training and he works at, I believe out of the Wharton school, but he Mm -hmm. wrote a book a few years ago called think again, the power okay. of knowing what you don't know. Um, and I think people who can admit that they don't know the answer to something and who can say, and I tell, used to tell young account people this all the time, don't tell the client an answer that you think they wanna hear if you don't really know the answer. It's perfectly okay to say, I don't know, but I'll find out mm. and go back to them a day later with the real answer. Too many times we're quick to give an answer just because we think we want to be the smartest person in the room. But I think it's more important to get it right.
0: Mm, Love it. Amazon Prime or Netflix, what are you watching or streaming that's good?
1: Oh my God, I subscribe to everything. Right now I'm watching um, Mayor of Easttown, which is on um, HBO Max here in the US. It's Kate Winslet um, in a small town outside of Philadelphia as a, a cop with a, like, checkered past and she's just fantastic but listening to her do listening to her do a small town pennsylvania accent is just amazing because <laughs> that's where i'm from and she's oh, nailed it
0: amazing amazing okay i'm adding that to the list mayor of Easttown. Um, mayor,
1: m-a-r-e
0: oh mayor oh mayor. mayor okay her
1: name is mayor
0: mayor of Easttown. Right. Yep. Okay. That would have sent me on a completely different journey. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, last couple of questions. Uh, what advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who's just starting their career in the advertising industry or in the agency industry and wants to follow a similar path to you?
1: Um, I didn't really have a path that you could look <laughs> at and say that it's very clear. Um What I what I always tell people about my career is that I was willing to take on things that nobody else wanted to take on. Even going back to that Bell Atlantic example, as I said, it was a four and a half million dollar piece of business. It was all radio and outdoor. It wasn't glamorous car phones at the time. And they were car phones were three thousand dollars installed in your car. Nobody wanted to work on this. But it was, it would have been, it was a promotion for me. And I raised my hand and said, I'd like to do it. And I took it on and look where it is now and what it did for my career. I didn't know it at the time, but it built my career. But it was being willing to take on those things that nobody else wants to take on, because you think you can do something and have an impact. And when I say that as broadly as I just said it I say that on purpose because if you're just coming into this industry and you look at the industry and you say it's not really for me stick around and make a difference that's Mm. the advice I would give you
0: Mm. absolutely love it and my final question Nancy what does you know about making diverse change in our industry today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career
1: how important it is to just keep pushing through those walls and not stop at the things that are checking off a list and really being tenacious about pushing that um, agenda forward and not caring whether people think you're a troublemaker or not. As um, John Lewis in the United States was wont to say, it's good trouble.
0: (laughs) Absolutely love it. Thank you for doing this, Nancy. You've been so generous with your time. I've learned a ton from speaking with you. We need to get you back on the show because I've only scratched the surface of the questions that we could have asked you today. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Absolutely loved it, Nathan, anytime.
0: We have been speaking with Nancy Heal. is currently the founder at the Sherpa Agency. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 125 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in the advertising world. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathanatagencydealmasters.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Boaszczak is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.